All right, Genesis chapter 12. Last time we left off right at the end of verse 4, so tonight we kind of pick back up here in verse 5 of chapter 12 as we sort of saw last time the call of Abraham. In fact, for context's sake, to kind of take a running start at this, why don't we just back up and read down through verses 1 through 4 as we remember kind of where we left off at the end of verse 4. It tells us, chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So an indication that through the line of Abraham, the messianic promise the messiah jesus christ would come and bring a blessing to all nations under the earth verse 4 so abram departed as the lord had spoken to him and lot went with him his nephew remember and abram was 75 years old when he departed it says from haran interesting to take note of that as we talked about as he departed from Haran now at this point. Again, Acts chapter 7, we talked about this last time, fills in for us this detail that it says that the God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, referring to his homeland, Ur of the Chaldeans. And it tells us that the God of glory appeared to him while he was there before he dwelt in Haran. So the scriptures indicate to us uh, pretty clearly that God spoke to Abram while he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. This call that we read here in verses 1 through 3, this call came to Abram. Uh, and he didn't know the God of glory. He was a pagan, idolatrous man living in Ur of the Chaldeans. Uh, he didn't know the one true and living God. He, they worshipped the moon God as well as other idols uh, in this very affluent culture that he lived in. Uh, and God, by his grace, sovereignly looking upon the earth, sees Abraham and by his sovereign grace and election finds this one man who's a pagan, idolatrous, it seems very wealthy and comfortable man. And God appears to Abraham and just puts this call upon his life. And it's a complete demonstration of the grace of God. God selects Abraham and he puts this call on his life after he reveals himself to him, Abraham I want you to get out of your country. I want you to leave this place. I want you to separate from your family. That was part of his calling that he was going to have to separate from these close emotional ties that he had with his natural family in order to follow God's call on his life. As many times to follow God's call on all of our lives, not only do we have to many times depart from where we're at maybe geographically presently, but we have to depart sometimes from some of the most close and meaningful relationships we have humanly that was part of it, that he was to leave his family behind. And God said, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. And ultimately, as he went there, God said, I'm going to make a nation of you. Remember, Sarah was barren, so that was an astonishing thing to hear because Sarah uh, was unable to have children. At this time, Abram's 75, it tells us ultimately when he departs from Haran, Sarah's 65. So it's not like they're 
young spring chickens at the time that they're hearing these things on top of that. And God says, I'm going to make a nation of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And you're going to be a blessing. And through you, a nation will be born. And through your line, all families, all nations on the entire earth uh, will be blessed. An indication ultimately that Jesus Christ, the Savior and Deliverer and Messiah, of Israel would come through the chosen people of uh, the Hebrews, uh, as we see here with Abraham's calling. Now, we know because of what Acts 7 tells us, as we made mention, that this calling comes when he's in Ur of the Chaldeans, but it seems Abram, this man of faith, who Hebrews tells us that in faith he obeyed, not knowing where he was going, and went to a land and sort of pursued the call of God when he didn't even have all the particulars. All he knew was go to a land. So, again, here's Abram. He comes home. He tells his wife, the one true and living God appeared to me. He told me that he's going to bless me. He's going to make a nation out of my life and, and that he's going to establish us. And he wants us to go to this land that he's still going to show us. And I think we should, again, you know, load up the, the ear hall and, and get the camels and the donkeys and, and go. And, and we're going to have to leave the family and, and go and follow this calling. And, and he's sharing this news. Again, God tells him to leave his family, but it seems he doesn't quite comply with that because we read that his father, Terah, goes with him at the end of chapter 11 as well as we see Lot here, his nephew is still with him. So there's not a complete obedience on Abram's part. And again, this is an encouragement because it seems he gets delayed in completely following the call of God because he goes to Haran, which is still 400 miles from Canaan where ultimately he's supposed to be and we'll see he gets to tonight. But he goes to Haran and it seems that they stay in Haran for a while. Very likely because his father Terah went along with him and he didn't completely separate from his family. Again, you know how emotional dynamics are. He shares the call of God with his family and Terah says, you know what, son, that sounds like a great idea. I've been kind of wanting a clean start myself and, and, and that sounds like a, a fantastic thing. And his nephew Lot says, yeah, and you know, Pops has died and Uncle Abram, you've become like a second father to me, so I want to come with you too. And, and that family, need to remember, in that time in the ancient culture, it was a very patriarchal society. So in a sense, if Pops, Terah's coming along, he's the boss, not Abram. Even though Abram's a grown man and he's a married man, Terah's still the boss. So very likely, that's one of the things that bogs them down because as they get to Haran, maybe Terah says, you know what, this is good enough. Uh, Haran seems like a, a good land. This is a different land. God said we were going to go to a land that he would show you. I like this land because it seems from, in commentators, dispute, five to 15 years, they stay in Haran and don't go anywhere. Chapter 11 uh, tells us in verse 32 that Terah died in Haran. And in other words, Abram does not depart until Pops dies. And he, he's a great encouragement in the sense that here is this man of faith held out in the scriptures. And the Bible holds him before us as a man who journeyed and lived by faith and yet so encouraging to see his faith wasn't perfect. He was growing. 
And at times he had, we're going to see, even lapses in his faith. And, and he was learning how to completely follow God in full obedience. And at times he, he, he didn't go all the way for whatever reasons, emotional connections or maybe fears or apprehensions. He wasn't always following the will of God completely for his life, but he was growing. And God still used him. And God still fulfilled his calling through his life. So his father dies in Haran. That seems to then be the catalyst where then Abraham says, you know what? I haven't completely obeyed the Lord. And Haran's not really, I know where I'm supposed to be because I know what the Lord had spoken to me back in Mesopotamia when he revealed himself to me. And and now he has a little more liberality because what's God done? Through death, God's removed his father out of his life. And and it's like God's lifted off one more thing to kind of help facilitate the call of God upon his life. And this one's so wonderful. God's so patient. You know, Abraham makes a few faux pas along the way if one of us was God, we'd probably say, you know what, forget it, man. I'm just going to get somebody different from Ur of the Chaldees and get him on track. This guy's taking too long to follow the call of God on his life, but God's so patient. He allows his father to die, and he says, all right, let's get this back on track now. And now they begin, it seems, to finally depart and to follow this calling that God has given to Abram to get out of his country and his family because verse 4 says he now departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Again, so he finally departs now. And this is a critical part of the call of God. You discern the call of God and what he tells you to do, but ultimately you need to take that step of faith and obedience, like Hebrews 11 says, he, in faith he obeyed not knowing where he's going. It's one thing to discern the call of God and say, hey, I know this is what God's called me to do. It's a whole other thing to then take the step of departure off the cliff of oblivion, (laughs) into a life of faith to follow the call of God, despite what the consequences may be, and say, I don't know all the details, and I don't know how God's going to work it out in all the particulars, but this is what God's called me to do, so I'm going to take the step, and I'm going to depart from where I'm at now and begin on this journey into a life of faith to follow God's calling. And for you to follow God's calling in different ways in your life, There needs to come a time where after you've clearly discerned with a yes and an amen, and it's obvious, this is God's calling for you. God tells you to do something. He shows you to go somewhere. He asks you to get involved in something where at a certain point, you got to get up from where you're at and you got to depart and you need to make that severance and you need to start walking forward in the direction that God is leading you in. And that's why it's important to know that you're called. You don't go anywhere until you know you're called. But once you know you're called, there comes that spot here. Abram, he departs in verse 4. Lot, notice, is still with him. And Abram, 75 years old when he departs now from Haran to head towards the land of Canaan. Again, take notice of that. 75 years old. 75 years old when he starts to pursue the calling of God on his life. Moses was 80. When God started working in his life, he spent the first 40 years, Moses did, kind of thinking he was something. And then God spent the next 40 years with him in the wilderness, teaching him that he was nothing. And then Moses spent the last 40 years of his life with God demonstrating to him that I can make something when you realize that you're a nothing. And, and, and much like us, you know, God has to knock the wind out of our sails and then we... But 
again, 75 years old, 80 years old, when these men began pursuing the call of God. Don't give me this stuff. Oh, well, I don't serve the Lord. That's for all, you know, all the young, energetic, zealous people in the church. You know, this is, these are my senior years. You know, I just, I, I kind of I, I give direction and sit back, but God uses all the young people. No, he's 75 years old, and he's just starting the call of God upon his life. You're never too old, and you never retire in serving the Lord. No matter what age you're at, there are people who have got at what we consider a latter stage of life, a call of God upon their life, and they went for it, and they pursued it, and they did great and fruitful things for the Lord. So don't ever let that age thing be a thing. You're never too young to serve the Lord, but by the same token, don't ever tell me you're too old to serve the Lord. Don't matter how old you are, if God calls you, depart and pursue what God's calling you to do, whether it be something small or something huge uh, in the sense of Abram going to the other side of the world from where he lived. Verse 5 says, Then Abram took Sarai his wife, and that's a good choice if you're going to follow God's call. Take her along. He took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son. Remember, uh, Haran his brother had died, and Lot kind of took a connection to Abram. And all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. So it seems that Abram's got quite a caravan. Remember in the next few chapters, Abram it says, had 318 trained soldiers with him as he goes and rescues Lot later on. So Abram wasn't just traveling. This was like a massive caravan. Important to remember that in the next few verses, you'll see Abram hit the panic button when a famine comes. This wasn't just trying to keep him and Sarai and Lot fed and alive. Abram uh, seems to be someone who has become very blessed He's very wealthy. It tells us here uh, in verse 5 here, all the people he acquired. So he has servants, he has flocks and herds and so forth, whom they acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. So ultimately God got them to his destination. And that's the wonderful thing. The gifts and call of God, the Bible says, are irrevocable. And when God begins a good work in us, though we may stumble and get sidetracked and take exit ramps, the wonderful thing is God gets us to the land he wants to get us to. God gets us to the destination he needs to get us to. And here, finally, Abram now enters into the land of Canaan where he's supposed to be. In verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were in the land. So again, the Bible already begins to indicate to us that though Abram is in the center of God's will, the Canaanites, remember, become a people who become chronic and perennial enemies of the Jews and of God's chosen people in the land. And they will be the people who cause conflicts and battles to happen. And just because Abram's in the promised land doesn't mean that problems are gone. And that's important to realize, you know, when you're in the center of God's will, it doesn't mean the absence of problems. And sometimes it means the increase of problems because there will be Canaanites and there will be enemies and there will be oppositions and things to overcome along the way. And already he doesn't just go to a land that's uninhabited. He goes to a land where he's going to have to dispossess uh, ultimately, again, the nation of Israel, not Abram himself, but ultimately when the Jews go in and take that land in a fullness under Joshua's reign, uh, and through Moses, they have to dispossess the enemies to f take the full inheritance of what God intended for them. And of course, the land of Canaan and the entering, and all this becomes a picture 
of the fullness of the life in the Spirit, that we go in to the promised life of the Spirit God has for us, and we need to be willing to work through some of the battles to experience the fullness of what God's intended for us. So he now goes into the land. In verse 7, he's where he needs to be. And first time we read of this in the Scriptures, then the Lord appeared, first time that word shows in the Bible, where God himself is appearing to someone. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, it says, and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So God now gives to Abram, it seems, this very personal and very powerful revelation of himself. The first time we see this in the Bible, that God appears in this terminology to a man. So God, notice he's a God of revelation. And God reveals himself in some personal way very powerfully to Abraham. And what does he do? He gives Abraham a word of confirmation regarding his calling. He's where he needs to be. And God now appears to him and in a very personal and powerful way. He says, Abram, to your descendants... I'm going to multiply you, Abram. To your descendants, I give this land. He's confirming the call of God upon his life. And when you're following the call of God, look for God to bring his confirmations. It's okay to ask God for confirmations. Sometimes we need that because we get to where we're supposed to be and sometimes we start to fret or backtrack or rethink things and God just gives a confirmation. The Bible says the things of the Lord are yes and amen. And he's where he's supposed to be now. And God says, Abram, it's to your descendants I'll give this land. Again, you should highlight that. You should underline that. Because there is no question in the mind of God. And there is no question in the word of God who that land belongs to. Notice, God says to Abram, who is the father of the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel... God says to him, I give this land to your descendants. Notice who owns the land. God owns the land. God owns the land. He's the owner. And God says, I'm choosing to lease this land to the people of Israel. To your descendants, I'm giving this land. So by divine right, God has given the land. God's the creator and possessor of the heavens and the earth. God owns every part of the land. But the Bible is very clear, that piece of land where they're to be, God says, I've given it to the nation of Israel. I've clearly given it to them. That's why when anybody tries to take it or divide it or give it up, they're going against a divine decree, a divine decision. God says, Abram, I've given this to your descendants. And there we see Abram builds an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. So right there, he just begins to worship the Lord openly. He, he understands the idea of an altar, no doubt Noah experienced this. It seems Adam and his sons experienced this. There is this general understanding of how to, to, to worship the Lord, to build an altar, the shedding of blood, the to approach God through sacrifice. And, and somehow Abraham understands this. And right there in the land, he begins to worship the Lord. Now, you better believe that the Canaanites watching this would find that very strange and peculiar as he builds an altar and he's watching, uh, they're, they're watching him allow an animal to be consumed, and they're thinking, oh, aren't you overcooking that thing a little bit? You know, I mean, we don't, we don't, we, we like stuff crispy, but I mean, that's, what do you, what do you do? No, no, you don't understand. I'm not barbecuing something. 
This is a sacrifice to the one true and living God. And, and, and here already you see that he's a man of the altar. He's a man of worship. In fact, verse 8 tells us he then moved from there. Notice he just goes to a different territory, to the mountains east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there, again, notice what he does as he moves locations. There he built an altar to the Lord and he called on the name of the Lord or literally the name of Jehovah, the name of, of Yahweh. Abram moves, it tells us now, and he moves to a location, it says, that is between Bethel and Ai. Interesting, the word Bethel literally means house of God. The word Ai means heap of ruins. And here he is between the house of God and the heap of ruins, and he's worshiping the Lord. And you know how relative to our lives. A lot of times that's where we feel like we're at. We kind of feel like that we're right in between the house of God and a heap of ruins all around us in our world. And the only thing that keeps us anchored or centered is to have a personal altar in worship and devotion and dedication to the Lord. You know, we are on our way to the ultimate house of God, to heaven, the, the tabernacle in the eternal realm where we're going to be with the Lord. For, and in the meantime... We're kind of stuck here between the house of God and, and a heap of ruins in this world that's falling apart all around us. And what keeps us going? Well, what kept Abraham going? It says two things. Notice verse 8. He was a man of the tent, and he also was a man of the altar. When you watch Abraham's life, this man who's a picture of a man who follows the calling of God who's looking for a city that has foundations not made with the hands of men, eternal in the heavens, this man who's pursuing God and pursuing God's call, living a life by faith. He was a man of the tent, and he was a man of the altar. Everywhere he went, the tent defined his relationship to this world. It was temporary. You don't see Abram building a mansion, and he had money. You're going to read the next chapter. It says that he had tons of gold. Abraham could have built... You know, he could have built himself a really nice thing. But Abram had a light touch on this world. He was a man of the tent. That defined his relationship to this world. It was He kept a loose grip on it. He chose to live a nomadic life. He lived in a tent. He lived simply because his idea was, this isn't, my, this isn't ultimately what it's about. There's something beyond this present existence. So he's a man of the tent. That defined his relationship with this world. He was here temporarily. And he was a man of the altar. That defines his relationship to the next world. He was a man of worship, a man of devotion to God. He lived an altered life by daily having an altar of worship and fellowship. It says there he again, notice, wherever he goes, he builds an altar to the Lord and he called, it says verse 8, on the name of the Lord. The idea is worship and seeking God for guidance. He was a man who sought God's guidance, he sought God's direction, and he wanted to live out his time here in close relationship with God as he journeyed by faith everywhere that he went. Well, verse 9 says, So Abram journeyed again, going still toward the south. And that word literally is toward the Negev. So we kind of get an idea geographically where he's at at this point. And notice, if you would, a life of faith is a life that is not just sort of passive and sitting still and doing nothing. Here's this man living by faith, and look at the constant terms. Verse 4, he departed. It tells us, verse 6, he passed through. 
Uh, it tells us in verse 8, he moved. It tells us in verse 9, he journeyed. See, a life of faith is a life that is continually moving forward. It's a life that moves wherever the Lord is moving. He departed from things. He moved to places. He journeyed. He continued to stay on the course that God had him on. Be careful of allowing yourself to come to a place of Christian complacency where you just sit on your hands and you do nothing. That's, that's not a life of faith. A life of faith is continuing to follow God in wherever he's leading and whatever he's leading in. And, and maybe this hour it's doing this. And maybe next hour it's doing that. And maybe this season it's doing this. And maybe next season it's doing that. But a life of faith should be a forward-moving thing where we walk with God. We're making progress continuously in our Christian life, following wherever the Lord is leading and wherever the presence of the Lord is directing, day by day, week by week, year by year in our life, that we're going and moving in the directions where God is leading us, staying current with the Lord. Well, here's Abram. He's now in the land. The Lord's appeared to him. He's building altars to the Lord. His, he's where God's called him to be. He's in the center of the will of God. He's answered God's calling on his life. And he's arrived there. And you're thinking, fantastic. That should about be a life that is blessed and wonderful. And then all of a sudden, this curveball happens. Look at verse 10. It says, now there was a famine in the land. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was, it says, severe in the land. Now, wait a minute here. Abraham is right in the center of the will of God. He's right where God called him to be. And now all of a sudden he's where God has called him to be. And this severe drought and famine-like condition comes upon the place where he's at circumstantially. And now here's Abram and he goes out one day and he realizes mm, it's, it's kind of looking a little dry around here. And you know, boy, we, we, we got a lot of you know, camels and, and flocks and, and, you know, in, in Israel, rain was pertinent to their survival. In a place like Egypt and other places where you have, you know, Nile rivers and water sources, this was a key to survival. In Israel, they are dependent upon the rains and, and where he's at specifically. So he's watching things dry up around him. And he's realizing that things kind of are getting more difficult and more difficult. And no doubt, he's with people you know he's in the same spot where he's under pressure. Okay, he, He's got a wife who has opinions, like every marital couple has opinions for one another. He's got Lot there who's probably throwing opinions. He's got other servants around. And you know at some point he's also starting to get, uh, Abram, uh, I thought you said this was where God called us to be. If this is where God called us to be, then where is all the pie in, in the sky and prosperity and blessings and the multitudes of people and the big nation that's going to start happening? And You said, God said, go there and I will bless you and a great nation will come and you'll be a blessing. Uh, this is kind of getting like a curse. It seems like this is dry and difficult and there are problems and this is causing problems now and uh, it seems like that this is more of a uh, you know, struggle to survive than it does prosperity and blessing and moving forward into this great plan that God had. And Abram's confronted with this, even himself personally, and you know he's just like us. I know if I were Abram, I'd be thinking, 
Did I hear wrong? Lord, I thought this is what you told me to do. Lord, I thought this is where you called me to be. Lord, if this is where you called me to be, then why is it so difficult? And Lord, where's all the blessing and prosperity? Why the famine? Why the drought? Why the difficulty? It's hard even getting by. Lord, this is where I'm supposed to be, and why aren't you providing? And you know, sometimes we find in our lives this kind of stuff happens. We're, we follow the call of God, and then as we follow the call of God, in the midst of the call of God, it gets real hard. And we find ourselves starting to question, Lord, if this is where you called me, then why aren't you providing for me? And why is it difficult? And, and, and why are there challenges, and why is it hard and not only are we not going forward, Lord, it seems like we're losing ground. It seems like we're going backwards. And this is hard and difficult. And no doubt we in those times begin to question. And in those times, we also become tempted through our fears and through our questions to begin to allow a spirit of doubt and a spirit of fear to consume and control us. And like Abram, then we hit the panic button and we say, you know what? Either I must have heard wrong, or maybe God needs a little help. So I better take matters into my own hands here, because I got a wife who's not real thrilled with me, and I got other people who are starting to question me, and I'm not enjoying this either, so maybe I need to do something. So what does Abram say? He leaves where he's supposed to be at. He departs from where God called him to be. And notice he went down to Egypt. You always go down when you go to Egypt. Egypt in the Bible becomes a type of the world and a type of the world system. And he now goes down to Egypt. Now, from a practical perspective, that seemed really smart. Egypt was a fertile area. Egypt had the Nile and it overflowed in flood season its banks and they had great irrigation systems. They were already an established culture. So many a times when things got difficult, it was common for people of other areas and civilizations to go to Egypt during times of drought and famine. We see this in the scripture a few times and we know this was true historically. So from Abram's perspective, this seems like a really smart move. Hey, no problem. Let's, let's be practical, right? God wants us to use common sense. So let's go where we can take matters into our own hands and fix the problem and solve things. And it seems like a logical, intelligent, rational solution using his own human understanding. The problem is there's no mention here of Abraham seeking God. There's no mention of Abram praying. There's no mention of the Lord appearing and saying, Abram, this famine is to get your attention because I want you to now go to Egypt for a season there's none of that. This is Abram in fear, doubting God's word, doubting God's promise, doubting God's calling because it's difficult for a season, as sometimes the call of God may be, and taking matters into his own hand and in a sense somewhat having a lapse of faith and backsliding and going back to his worldly ideas and his worldly ways thinking, well, I'll, I'll solve and fix all this on my own. And I got to do what's responsible. And instead of staying put and trusting God and learning how to do what? Live by faith. Because sometimes faith needs to be exercised. And guess what? God sent a famine to cause Abraham to grow in his faith, to allow his faith muscles to be exercised. See, when things are going great, does it really take a lot of faith? 
course not. Things are going great. Boy, I really got to trust the Lord. No, things are going great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But when things are hard, we got to learn how to trust the Lord and believe his word and, and know how to stand in faith and wait on the Lord and wait on the promise of God to be fulfilled in our lives. And, and, and faith is like a muscle. It has to be exercised to grow. And how else does God grow our faith muscles other than to allow them to be tested and allow them to be tried? So God lets this famine come as he does for Abram. You know, we have a, we have a really wrong tendency sometimes. I hear people say things like, you know, God will never let you be tested beyond what you are able. God will never let you be tested beyond what you're able to handle personally. You know, truthfully, that's wrong. God will let you be tested beyond what you are able so that you will find in your weakness that the Lord's ability is sufficient for you to walk through things that are beyond your capability. Paul says at one point we despaired of life, he says in 2 Corinthians 1, but he says this happens so that we might learn not to trust in ourselves, but in the living God who raises the dead. So the truth of the matter is, God will let you be pushed beyond what you're able to bring you to the end of yourself so that you will learn how to rely upon God's sufficiency and how to live by faith and wait on the Lord and trust God. This does not look good. <laughs> and this ain't working. But I'm going to stand in faith and not flee and hit the panic button or go back to the worldly ways that I used to do things. I'm going to stay where you called me to be and trust you to fulfill your calling and your purpose on my life. And God is seeking to grow us in faith. Well, Abram, and so encouraging. Aren't you glad the Bible lets us see the humanity of Abram? Because it encourages us because we make the same mistakes. And Abram here makes a mistake. It tells us that he goes down to Egypt to dwell there. That was a very, looked logical. On paper, it looked like a great idea. Abram, there you go. We knew you're a good leader. You humbled yourself, admitted this is where we shouldn't be. Let's go do something else. So they now go down to Egypt, and it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt, verse 11, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Now, that's smart for a husband. His wife's 65 years old. He says, babe, you are still a knockout. He says, I, you are just, yeah, they made the mold and threw it away. Nobody's as attractive as you. Wife, he says, man, I know you're beautiful. Now, you've got to be careful as well what's coming after that if he's not sincere. Because verse 12, he says, therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you. In other words, they're on their way to Egypt now. Dear, you are so beautiful but listen, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me. But they'll let you live. So please say, you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, that I may live because of you. So Abram, as he's on his way now, in a lapse of faith, walking away from the place where God called him to be, regressing and sliding backward, deviating off the path God has for him, he now does what we all do. He starts rationalizing and thinking through things in a wrong way. And now he's in complete self-preservation mode. Why? Because he's not trusting God. Abraham's taking everything into his own control now. He's working this whole problematic thing out on his own. He's decided where to go. So now he's calling all the shots and making all the decisions. And in his human understanding, again, he rationalizes. And this was totally logical and rational. He says, look, I know what's going to happen. When we go to Egypt, 
they're going to see you're beautiful. Somebody is going to want you for their wife or in their harem, so they're going to murder me and take you. And see, this was true. We know from Egyptian tablets and writings, the Egyptians believed that adultery was wrong. And because they believed adultery was wrong, rather than taking someone's wife and entering into adultery, their perception was we need to murder the husband and then she is a free opportunity. We can take her as our wife or we can bring her into our harem. So they knew adultery was morally wrong. Murder, however, they didn't quite have a problem with. You know, so just, And that was the code they lived by. And that's why Abram's saying this. Because he says, I know how it is with the Egyptians. They won't steal a man's wife. What they'll do is just kill a man and then take his wife. And, and he understood this is the way that they operated down there in that culture. So he's in fear now, and he's in self-preservation mode. And notice how tragic. What's he doing? He's asking his wife to lie. Now, some people say, well, it was kind of a half-truth because he says, say that you're my sister. And when we know we get to, to chapter 20, we do read that biologically Sarai actually was his half-sister. You know, um, So you know, well, this is only kind of a half-lie. And this is probably how Abram was justifying in his own mind as well. You know, we try and justify things and rationalize so we feel better about what we're kind of doing. But a half lie is, you know, I mean, a half truth is a whole lie. I mean, it's a half lie, half truth. It's just, it's a lie. He's in self-preservation mode. He's trying to be deceptive. And he's concerned about, guess who? Himself. Because he's preserving himself. He doesn't want to get hurt and die. What about his wife? In the meantime, he's saying, hey, look, so that they don't kill me, so maybe, verse 13, be well with me, he says, and so that I'll live. You just say you're my sister, and that way they won't kill me, and, and, and they may negotiate and ask you to become their wife, but at least we'll both live in the process. Never a good thing when you start on a path of disobedience because typically all you really begin to care about is yourself. So what's he doing now? Now this husband, totally unloving, Instead of being sacrificial and caring about what's best for his wife, all he cares about is what's best for himself. And he's doing what? He's making his wife vulnerable now. He's putting his wife in a vulnerable position to get stolen by an Egyptian man or taken into a harem, for what's worse, just so that he can live. And he basically is jeopardizing the vulnerability of his own bride, being a totally careless and irresponsible husband at this point. So he's struggling. Tell this story, verse 14. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman and she was, notice, very beautiful. And not that just any Egyptian want her, but it says, verse 15, the princes of Pharaoh. Well, that makes it even way worse. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and they commended her to Pharaoh. Hey, Pharaoh, if you're, you're looking for another wife for a new addition to your harem, you should see this Semitic woman that just came into town with this guy Abram and this caravan and and they're giving great compliments to Pharaoh about Sarai and the woman notice was then taken into Pharaoh's house they told the story and oh great well that's just your sister well then he brings her into Pharaoh's house now and verse 16 and Pharaoh treated Abram well for her sake he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and, and camels. In other words, because he thinks that Abram is just her brother, as they would in that day negotiate for bridal rights and so forth, he's being real nice to 
big brother Abram saying, hey, you know, boy, take some donkeys and have some of my servants. I mean, anything for you to let me have your little sister. I mean, and so here Abram, he's getting, um, here's Sarai in the whole picture. She's looking out the window, stuck inside Pharaoh's house here. And she's looking out the window and here's Abram. Hey, have another donkey. And how many more servants could you use? And, and here he's just, you know, being personally enriched and blessed in the process. And at the same time, he's put his wife in this totally vulnerable situation. Verse 17, thank goodness, but the Lord. And when we're acting dumb, thank goodness there are but the Lord statements. That even though we're making foolish decisions, it says, but the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Notice, even though Abram wasn't very wisely or lovingly protecting his wife and looking out for her best interest or valuing their marriage the way he should have. And if he had never gone down or he never would have been in this situation, he's in a compromised spot because he didn't trust the Lord. He's, he's now having to compromise and make concessions. But notice, God is doing what? God's trying to get him out of it. Isn't it wonderful that even when we are on the wrong course, God comes and pursues us and he works on our behalf? to try and get us out of the messes that we get ourselves into. It says the Lord just starts to plague Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have, so notice it never happened, God intervened to protect and preserve before anything happened in, of intimacy or sexual relation, he says, I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and get out of here. Take your wife and get out of town, man. Get away from me. Apparently, as Pharaoh starts to be plagued by God, somehow by revelation, whether he starts asking questions or through the plagues, God divinely reveals to him this isn't this man's sister, this is this man's wife, and now Pharaoh calls Abram in, and what do you have now? Now you have a pagan, an unbelieving man, rebuking one of God's children, saying, yo, what did you lie to me for? It is always really bad when an unbeliever is rebuking one of God's children. When it takes somebody who's in the world to confront us for the things that we're doing. And they start questioning you or questioning me, saying, yo, what are you doing? Why are you doing... I, well, things are really bad at that point because the testimony of the Lord has been tarnished. And it's a really sad thing that God would have to use the tongue of an unbelieving person to rebuke us at times for our own disobedience and the foolish ways that we live sometimes because of our lack of faith or our disobedient courses. And... and, and, and Take note of this, ladies, because I find this wonderful too. Here's Sarai. Her husband puts her in this compromising position. He makes a poor decision. He makes a poor choice. But what does she do? First Peter 3 holds out Sarah, Abram's wife, as a tremendous representation of what it means to be a godly woman, specifically focusing in, it says, how she obeyed her husband and called him Lord. Now, I don't personally think Sarah agreed and liked this whole plan. I'm just guessing. Maybe I'm off. Maybe that's speculation. I don't think she'd be real thrilled about the idea of, hey, just say you're my sister because that way my neck will be spared and sorry for what happens to you if you get taken into somebody's harem. But, hey, 
you know, you love old A.B., you wouldn't want me to die, would you? So just tell a lie and hope it goes okay with you and it was nice knowing you. I mean, certainly she's not probably very excited about this whole plan, but she submissively, obediently cooperates with even the bad decision that her husband makes. And what does God do? God honors it. Because God comes to her rescue. And God honors the submissiveness and the obedient spirit of Sarai towards her husband as a godly woman. She submits as unto the Lord and she obeys his leadership, even when he makes a bad choice, and God comes and rescues her and plagues Pharaoh and protects her and preserves her and nobody touches her because God says, that's my daughter. And, and even if Abraham's a knucklehead, I'll still make sure that Sarai gets taken care of. You know, that's a great consolation because at times, you know what? God helps sisters in the Lord and our wives that they have to follow our leadership and sometimes we make some really dumb decisions. And you know what? But you can't lose in obeying and being submissive to what God's intention is to cooperate with the leadership of your husband and say, Lord, you rescued Sarah out of Pharaoh's harem. And plagued Pharaoh and delivered and preserved and God, Lord, I don't agree with this. Quite honestly, I, I I think this direction is a bad direction. But Lord, I trust you, and I trust that you'll come to my aid if that's what you need to be. And 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 this beautiful example here is God intervenes. Pharaoh rebukes Abram, take your wife, go your way. Verse twenty. And notice Pharaoh was so serious. It says he even commanded some of his men, so he sends a brigade of soldiers to kind of escort him out of town. Make sure you get them out of here. I don't even want them in our area. He commands his men concerning him, and they sent Abram away with his wife and all that he had. And I bet you that was a quiet trip back to Canaan. Do you think? I bet you that was a real long, silent journey all the way back up north between Abram and Sarai as they were on their way back. But thankfully, God came to their aid and got them out of it. Well, verse 13 is a great encouragement because here a man has a lapse of faith, but God doesn't do away with him. God doesn't dispose of him. God doesn't say, that's it, I'm done with you. He allows him a chance to rebound. And the grace of God here, because Abram, the Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but you know the, the Lord still upholds him. And what's Abram do? Look at 13 verse 1. Then Abram went up from Egypt. He went down into Egypt, but now it says he went up. He's on his way back. He's been rebuked. He's been confronted with his error. He realizes he had a lapse of faith that he walked away from what he should have been staying and trusting God in. So now he is on his way back to where he knows God really called him to be, where he's supposed to be. And he's now back pursuing the call of God, coming back from Egypt. And you know what? We take our detours, and maybe you've backslid, maybe you've gone back into the world, maybe you got off track, whatever. Listen, you know what the best thing to do is? Just get out of Egypt. Just go back. Go back to where you know you're supposed to be. Don't stay there. If you've been rebuked, you've, it's been revealed, just turn around, get back up, and as quickly as you can, go back to where you're supposed to be. It says, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. And notice that, again, when, when a man, when a husband, when a leader 
goes back into the world and gets off course spiritually, he takes his family with him. And they suffer the consequences of that. In the same way, when a man decides to get right with God, it says his wife came back with him and his family and everybody else came back with him because it's a power of influence. And we can influence in a negative way or we can influence in a positive way. And Abram's in a heart of repentance now going back up to where he needed to be. And verse 2, notice Abram was very rich, the Bible says, in livestock, in silver, and in gold. So take notice, the Bible points to the prosperity Abram had in his life at this time, which is an indication of the result of his detour down into Egypt. He became very prosperous and wealthy. I point that out for this reason. Prosperity and wealth and financial advancement is not an indication that we're on track with God because he was personally enriched and more wealthy at this point in his life and it was not the result of obedience. It was the result of a season of being somewhere involved in things he shouldn't have been involved in. So don't think just because we're doing well financially that's an instant indicator. Well, I mean, yeah, I went back to the ways of the world and I kind of did things a worldly way, but I mean, look at all I got to show for it. Well, yeah, Abraham had some wealth, but guess what? He also picked up some other things in Egypt that were causing some real problems later on, one of them being Hagar, because he came back with Hagar now in his household, and we know the ultimate problem that happens and the damage to Abram's marriage when Abram ends up sleeping with his maidservant Hagar, and guess what? If he didn't go to Egypt, Hagar wouldn't have been around. She wouldn't have been a part of the family in the whole caravan. So he also picked up an appetite for Egypt in the heart of Lot, who becomes a real problem as well, because his nephew Lot develops an appetite for Egypt, and he desires to move towards the direction of Sodom because he saw things in Egypt, and he couldn't get Egypt out of the system. Abraham could shake Egypt, but Lot couldn't. And see, when we go back into the world and we bring our families and others with us, we need to realize we, we may repent, but we, we bring things back. And we expose our families to things in the world and we can expose ourselves to things and bring things into our lives that can ultimately be more problems than good. So Abram's very wealthy now. He went, it says, verse 3, on his journey from the south as far as Bethel. Notice the language, it says, he goes back to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai. So back to where he once was. To the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there, notice, Abram called on the name of the Lord. What beautiful verses. He goes back to where he was at the beginning. He goes back to the location where he, God appeared to him at first. This is back to the beginning, to the place of the altar where he made it the first, and he began to call on the name of the Lord again. You know what? Listen, when we take our detours don't linger there. Don't wallow there in condemnation and self-pity. When God reveals it and God reproves you, you know what? Just turn around, repent, and go right back to where you need to be. Go right back to the altar. It doesn't matter what you've been doing. Open up your Bible and read it again. Start praying again. Start worshiping the Lord again. Start pursuing the call of God on your life again. Just go right back to where you were at the beginning. Repentance is one of the most incredible gifts God's given to us. It's not a bad thing. It is a wonderful gift that we can repent. 
It means that when I'm doing the wrong thing, God's given me the freedom to change and to turn around and go back to the start and where I need to be. The church in Revelation, it tells us, the church of Ephesus, Jesus says, you've left your first love. And he tells them what? Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Go back to what you were doing at the beginning, he says. And sometimes like Abram, when we take our little detour spiritually, when we realize that we've done that, we just need to depart from where we are and get back to where we need to be. And here Abram, he comes back now. He rekindles his worship life. He's worshiping again. He's back where he was at the first Notice he's seeking God. He's calling on the name of the Lord. So his heart has come back. He's right with God where he needs to be again. Verse 5 says, And Lot also had went with Abraham, and he as well had inherited flocks and herds and tents. So they have quite a bit now. Verse 6, Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. So, All of a sudden now, all of this wealth and prosperity and this addition of flocks and herds, now it starts to create a problem. Now Lot and Abram both have so much as herdsmen and as those who are raising animals, it says the land, once they got back in that area where they were supposed to be, wasn't able to support them to dwell together. And all of a sudden, verse 7, it says, there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, and the Canaanites and Perizzites dwelt in the land. So all of a sudden now, there's conflict going on, and there's problems. And it says that Abram's workers and Lot's workers, their herdsmen, begin to have strife between them. The idea there is to complain, to argue, there's debating. And, and, and there's strife and division between them, and there's fighting amongst them. Why? Because where they're at, they can't cohabit together comfortably. So what's God do? God allows some conflict. God allows difficulties. God allows challenges again to come into place. God allows a problem circumstantially. Why? I can tell you why. Because sovereignly, ultimately, what God wants to do is separate Lot from Abram. Because if Abram stays with Lot, he is never going to fully fulfill the call of God, which God has intended for his life. Because Lot and his influence and his partnership was not spiritually on the same plane and perspective that Abram was on. And because of that, spiritually they were unequally yoked. And so what God does is bring circumstances to say, I need to bring a separation. Because as long as Lot stays with you, Abram, he's going to hold you back. You will never fulfill my calling for your life as long as Lot stays with you. So God allows them both to become so increased, even through some of some poor choices. God allows there to be such an increase that there's now circumstantial conflicts, there's challenges, there's strife and division. They're not getting along. They're not seeing things the same way. They're beginning to argue and dispute. And God's using tension and strife and dispute in human relationships to bring about his plan and purpose, to separate Abram, to get Abram on the course that he wants him on so that Lot doesn't hold him back from God's best for his life spiritually. So this debating and arguing is going on, and no doubt it's a poor testimony to the Canaanites and Perizzites because here's these two supposed brothers and family members, and they're fighting. 
you know what, when Christians are having strife and disputes and stuff, it's always a shame because the world looks on and Jesus says, they'll know you're my followers by your love one for another. And sometimes strife can be of the Lord. Paul and Barnabas had such a dispute, God allowed them to split and part company. Sometimes God will even allow these things. It's not an issue necessarily even at the end of the day of, well, who's right and who's wrong. Sometimes God just sovereignly allows these things to separate us from maybe individuals that would hinder us from being able to fulfill all that God intends for us. Verse 8, look, so Abram says to Lot, please, let there be no strife between you and me, he says, between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you please? separate from me if you take the left i'll go to the right or if you go to the right then i will go to the left so abram now initiates what he knows needs to happen and he says listen this isn't good he says we're brethren we're brothers rather than let all this strife and division and animosity there's plenty of space he says this isn't worth it This is not going to result in something good at the end of the day. And this is going to be a horrible testimony to all the Canaanites and Perizzites who are watching. It's obvious, he says, we need to separate from each other. We just need to go in two different directions. It's the best thing for both of us. And Abram takes the high road and says, look, if you take the left, I'll go to the right. If you take the the right, then then I'll go to the left. And here's what's amazing. Abram, as the older individual, just chronologically, it should have been his right to be able to say, listen, nephew, I'm the elder around here. I'm taking this and you go over there. He doesn't do that. Tremendous humility. He defers and he yields to his nephew as the older man, which shows you that he also has a lot more wisdom, as well as think of this. Who was God's calling on? Abram, not Lot. The land belonged to Abram. It was Abram's land. He could have said, listen, God's calling's on my life, punk. (laughs) Go back to Ur of the Chaldeans. This is my territory. This is what God's called me to do, but what's Abram do? He demonstrates tremendous spiritual security. He says, listen, I know God's going to fulfill his call on my life Because I'm the one that God's called. And I know God's called me. So because I know God's called me, I don't got to strive. I don't got to try and make something happen. Take whatever you want. Now he's on the total opposite end of the spectrum. Now, before a famine happened, he hit the panic button in fear. He, He walked away. Now, Abram, total reliance on the Lord. And he says, you know what? I can let go of everything. Because I trust God will still do what God's going to do. And, and, and Lot's trying to, we'll see in the next verse, Lot's trying to hold on to everything. Abram's just letting go of everything. That's how you can tell he's truly trusting the Lord and he's called. Because see, a life of faith has a loose grip on things. And a life of faith is able to say, you know what? Look, I, I can let go of everything. Because God's going to fulfill his plan in my life. God's going to fulfill his purposes. And we'll see as we continue to look at Abram and Lot, a tremendous comparison and a picture between a carnal believer and a spirit-filled believer. A believer who lives by faith, as Abram does, and a believer who lives by scheming 
and human ingenuity and in carnal, worldly, humanistic ways trying to fulfill what's best. It's going to say Lot chooses for himself the land that looks best with his eyes because that's how he lives. He lives by his flesh. He lives by his flesh. Abram lived by faith. Abram said, you know what? I'm not choosing for myself. I'll let God choose for me. Lot said, I'll pick for myself. Abram said, no, I'll, I'll let God pick. Whatever God wants, that's just what I want. And we'll see this tremendous comparison as we continue to look at these two lives. But we're going to have to do a to be continued. We're certainly at the end of our time. Why don't we stand? Let's pray together. We'll leave it as a cliffhanger, see what ends up happening. Father, thank you for your word and chance to look at these things together and just these fascinating and phenomenal stories you have given to us in Old Testament Scripture, Lord, as examples for our lives to live out a way that's pleasing to you in our own journey of faith. And and Lord, help us, we pray, to just the things that we've received tonight be able by faith to apply them and walk them out in our own lives and the things that you're directing us to do. Lord, we love you and we commit this week ahead asking that we could walk by faith and be fruitful for you. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.